Well, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor, and uh, Merry Christmas. I hope you guys are uh, full of anticipation and excitement for the week and some good stuff's coming up. I do want to invite you to come out tomorrow evening at 5 o'clock. We are having our Christmas Eve service. It'll be a great opportunity for you to come out with your family, to join your spiritual family, uh, or to come out um, and, uh, and get some community, right? Uh, we're going to be singing some songs and, and meditating on a little bit of the Word. The whole thing will take a little bit less than an hour, but, but it, you'll be blessed. It'll be a really good way to enter into um, just really the genuine heart of, of, uh, of, of why we, we celebrate Christmas. So tomorrow night, 5 o'clock, hope to see you. Uh, also want to give you a quick update on the special offering. Um, up to this point, we've collected uh, right around $18,000. We've had about 41 uh, donors, and, which is awesome. I'm thrilled. Um, very thankful for that. Uh, our goal is to raise enough money uh, to, to fix the front steps, um, to partner with R3, which is uh, a ministry in East St. Louis Restore Network, which works with foster and adoptive care throughout Illinois, and uh, to partner with uh, individuals in our own community who want to go on short-term mission trips to East Asia and um, Honduras. Our goal was to raise around $40,000, and uh, the whole thing is to equip us in ways to solve a problem that budgetarily uh, we haven't budgeted to solve and to be generous in ways that we didn't budgetarily uh, have the money to, to be generous. Um, so here's the win with this thing. Um, I'm really excited about where we're at. I'm excited about where we're going. But I, I, my, I was thinking about, man, the biggest win, honestly, is, is I just want um, as many people as the Lord would lead to participate. There is no insignificant gift. Because the bottom line is this, you guys. Um, it's good for us to give. It is just good for us to give. And this is an opportunity for us to partner with the rest of our spiritual community to do something that we can't do on our own, uh, to solve a problem we can't solve, be generous in ways we can't be generous, uh, and whatever we raise, we raise, right? Um, but my goal is, is really um, a high engagement. And so if you haven't given, if you haven't given, if you haven't wrestled with it, I just really would encourage you, before the end of the year, take some time and pray. Just ask the Lord how He would, he would lead you to be involved, right? How He would lead you to give and, and to be part of this. Um, because I'm telling you, when you partner together with the rest of the community and the sacrifice, it changes the way you enjoy uh, with the rest of the community the celebration, right? You're blessed as you bless. And so uh, pray about it. Um, would love to see you uh, participate with us in this. All right, let's grab our Bibles. We are continuing this morning in our Pray Like This sermon series uh, in Matthew chapter 6. In our Bibles, that would be page 811. We've been working our way through the Lord's Prayer, and uh, this series has um, expanded a little bit, taken a little longer than I thought it would. I didn't anticipate preaching on this series all the way through Christmas, um, but you know, things happen. And um, uh, I'm actually really glad because the reality is the themes have really aligned well with the Advent season as we have worked our way through, including this morning. Um, we're on the part of the prayer. Um, about forgiveness. So this morning, we're going to be talking about forgiveness. That's my Christmas gift to you. We get to talk about how you've hurt others and how others have hurt you. Merry Christmas. Um, yeah, some of you are like, Steve, seriously, man, it's Christmas. Couldn't you give it a break, right? Can't, 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 can't we just light some Advent candles, sing happy birthday to Jesus and call it good, right? Have a nice short morning and, and, uh, and, and, make it feel good. Um, why do we need to go here? 
Well, first of all, because this is where the text takes me, so it's not really my fault, all right? I'm just, I'm just following the text. It's, it's not my fault. Um, but secondly, um, you guys, seriously, Jesus didn't come to earth just to give you enough energy to make it through one more Christmas. Man, what low expectations for the risen Savior. Man, I just, I just want my tank filled so I can make it through this week. Really? That's all you want? Right? Jesus came to recreate you. Not to fill your tank so you can barely make it through another week. He, he came to set you free in ways you can't understand, to empower you in ways you've never experienced, to, to give you joy that is deeper and more boundless than a situation can ever warrant. He, he, he came to recreate you. And at the very heart of that plan, at the very heart of his mission, the reason God took on flesh, the reason Jesus was born in Bethlehem, is forgiveness. He came that we might have forgiveness with God and that we might grow in the grace of learning how to forgive others. He came that the prisoner might be set free. And the prisoner is set free through forgiveness, both by receiving and by giving. And so, uh, that's where we're going this morning. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to be reading verses 5 through 18. I'd like you to follow along in your Bibles as I read aloud, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others your, those their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness is a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Um, we love to receive it. Have you ever said something really stupid, done the wrong thing at the wrong time, acted selfishly when you were grumpy, um, taken advantage of somebody you shouldn't take advantage of, done the dumb thing, and then you felt that weight, <laughs> right? The weight that comes down on your shoulders when you realize, I'm the idiot, right? And you go to them and you, you, you just intrinsically know, man, you just feel it. The, the cosmic boot should come down and kick you in the gut. And instead, you're met with forgiveness. You're met with somebody who gives you an unexpected grace. You're met with a, with a humility, a hurt, but a humility. Isn't that awesome? I mean, it's hard. But it's surprising. That kind of love is always surprising. That kind of grace of forgiveness is always surprising. And it's always, it just lifts the weight off your shoulders. Being, being forgiven 
It's a wonderful experience. Not wonderful, it's obviously a horrible experience to go through the process, but, but, but experiencing the forgiveness itself is, is awesome. The concept of forgiveness is, is beautiful, but, but forgiving others? Hmm. Not so much. I don't have fond memories of that. Forgiving others generally doesn't feel like a weight lifted off our shoulders. It feels like a crushing weight placed on them. It's really hard to forgive others, right? The concept of forgiveness we get. We love the idea of forgiveness, and we even get that forgiveness can be in our own self-interest, right? If I forgive you, uh, I won't be chewed up inside by resentment. If I forgive you, I, I won't have um, resentment gnawing at my heart, right? If I forgive you, it's good for me, right? We get that, that there's a self-motivation and a self-interest in forgiveness. When I forgive you, I'm doing myself a favor, right? There's a quote in your bulletin um, from um, Lewis Smedes that uh, is, um, I'll go ahead and put it up, um, is uh, uh, profound in this way. It's very true. Uh, Go ahead and put that one up. Thank you. Um, There it is. Okay, he says, to forgive is to set the prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. That's profoundly true. That is profoundly true. Um, But it's a little bit more complicated than that, isn't it? Right? I mean, there is a self-interest piece there. To forgive you is good for me. (laughs) Right? So I might be motivated to forgive you purely out of self-interest. There is a benefit to me, right? Forgiveness is good for us, and we know that. We like the idea of it. But there's another quote in your bulletin that adds to the complexity, and that one's from C.S. Lewis. He says, everyone that says that forgiveness is a lovely idea, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Um, Yeah, actually doing it, that's the hard part. It isn't the idea of forgiveness that we struggle with. We know it's a beautiful idea. It's the practice. It's the actual doing of it. And it's understandable, y'all. You know why? Because we know forgiveness hurts. It just does. It's hard. And if we're honest, it feels wrong. Forgiveness feels like it just feels wrong. Like letting somebody off when they shouldn't be let off. Giving them something they don't deserve to get. And you having to be the one to give it when you're the one who has suffered, right? It just feels wrong. So, So let me ask you something. How do we pray this prayer? Forgive us our debts, even as we have forgiven our debtors. How do we pray this prayer with integrity as followers of Christ? How do, how do we not just say the words? It's really easy to say the words, and as Christians, we're often really good at that. We just say things that we don't really mean because it sounds religious and it's pious and, and, and we forget what we're actually saying. But how do we actually enter into the genuine meaning and reality of what Jesus is, is telling us to pray here? Well, here's the secret, I think. We need to really, really get the first part if we're going to accurately pray the second. The first part of the prayer, forgive us our debts. We need to really get that if we have any hope of entering into the second part, which is as we have forgiven our debtors, right? So I want to pay attention carefully to what Jesus is saying. First of all, he words this in a way that, that is, a, is weird, right? Forgive us our debts. That's weird, our debts, right? When someone hurts your feelings, when someone says something rude, when somebody doesn't give you what they should have given you or gives you what you never wanted, when, when somebody, because they've had a bad day, takes it out on you, when, when, when somebody, that's a debt, that's a sin. 
feels like a sin. That, that's a hurt. feels like a hurt. That's a trespass. I can go there. It feels like you've trespassed a boundary that you shouldn't have trespassed. That's an injustice. You, you, you inflicted on me something I didn't deserve, didn't earn, didn't want. But a debt? Well, I think it's, it's actually incredibly insightful because every sin, every hurt, every injustice is, in fact, a kind of debt. In Koine Greek, which is the language Jesus would have been speaking, it's the language with which Matthew wrote his gospel. In Koine Greek, there was only one word for, for both ideas. The same word could be translated as both debt and transgression. And I think that's a linguistic way of, of recognizing that there is, in fact, an intrinsic connection between these two ideas, that, that a transgression is, a trespass is a debt. A moral trespass, an, an emotional trespass, a spiritual trespass in which somebody has done what they shouldn't have done or didn't do what they should have done creates a relational debt. You ever felt that debt? That crushing weight when you know you've done something you shouldn't have done, said what you shouldn't have said, or didn't do what you should have done, or didn't say what you should have said? You know what that feeling is called, right? That's guilt. Right? Guilt is when we feel the debt we owe but have no idea how to pay it. Because that's the thing, there's no way to pay it. When, when the wound is spiritual, when the wound is emotional, when the wound is on a person's soul, there's no way to pay that back. It's a debt that we owe that we simply cannot pay. And guilt is the horrible feeling we feel when we acknowledge and recognize it's a debt that we owe. Right? And that usually occurs well after the event itself, because in the event itself, we're filled with pride, or we're filled with anger, or we're filled with self-focus, or we're filled with self-righteousness. And, and when we bring the wound on someone in our self-interest, we're not paying attention to them. We're only paying attention to ourselves. It's only later in reflection that we realize, holy cow, I've wounded them. And we feel the debt. There are two things that we try to do when we feel this debt. We try to pay it, or we try to run from it. Now, the irony is you can't do either, right? We try to pay the debt, right? There is nothing more stereotypical than a dude showing up with flowers and candy, right? After he's done something stupid to his wife, right? Um, which is a really bad idea, by the way, guys. Let me just give you a tip. I learned a long time ago not to show up with, with flowers to Lauren after I did something stupid. That's a good way for the flowers to end up in the trash, rightfully so rightfully so, right? As if flowers could fix a wounded soul, right? I was at the grocery store one time, and I was buying flowers for Lauren. I don't remember what it was, a birthday or anniversary, or maybe just, I don't know, whatever. But I was getting a really nice bouquet, and the lady behind the counter was like, wow, you must really be in the doghouse, right? I mean, it's so stereotypical. But don't we all do this? After we've wounded somebody, don't we, we try to pay it off? We're nicer than we normally are. We're more mindful of them than, than we usually are. Maybe we do a few extra chores or, or we spend a little extra money or, or we give a little extra attention. And, and it's our way of saying, I feel a debt I don't know how to pay. So I'm going to try to pay it in ways that we know don't really work. We're, we're trying to do what can't be done. We're trying to pay a debt that can't be paid. The flip side of this is some of us so hate the feeling of guilt, so hate the feeling of relational indebtedness, that when we wake up to what we've done, when we wake up to that feeling, we run. We create separation because it's such a horrible feeling and we have no idea how to pay it. We just run. That's deadly to the relationship. 
That's deadly, because what it does is it kills intimacy. At that point, what you're saying is, is not only have I wounded you, but I'm going to run from you. I'm going to create separation, which is the opposite of intimacy. We do this with people, and, and we also do it with God, right? When we feel our indebtedness to God, when we feel like we've been a failure before God, when we feel like we've betrayed God, when we feel like we've let God down, how often do we run to trying to pay it off, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm actually going to be happier when I do it. I'm, I'm going to help someone who's helpless or homeless, and, 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 I'm gonna, and, and then that makes me feel better about me, so obviously you must feel better about me too because I'm working so hard here. Or we run. We feel this gap of guilt before God, we feel the sense of condemnation, and we assume that God feels the same way we do about ourselves, and so we run. We cannot stand the feeling of falling short before God. Ironically, of course, neither one of those solve the problem, because guilt is a debt that cannot be paid, right? There's a third way. There is a third way. Um, in order to deal with this kind of wound, first of all, we need to recognize there's only one way to deal with this pain. The pain has to be absorbed by the one who received it. There's no other way around it. The pain must be absorbed. And secondly, for genuine healing to come, there has to be an experience of love a shared experience of love. It's the only thing that can heal the wound. The pain must be absorbed, and there must be a shared experience of love, which is why it is such good news that Jesus came to pay our debt with God, right? Now, think about this. Jesus tells his disciples, pray like this, right? He says, forgive us our debts. Man, that's a bold prayer. When you're a sinner coming before a holy God, when, when you're the offender coming to the one who is offended, when you're the, the creation coming before your creator, when you haven't lived up to your job description, you haven't been what you were created to be, when, when, when you are not holy and you're coming into the presence of the very holy, forgive us our debts. That's a bold prayer. It's also an incredibly beautiful prayer, especially when you consider the context. Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray like this, even as he was on his way to the cross to pay for their debts. Even, even as he was on his way, right? Even as he was living the life they should have lived and on his way to die the death they deserved to die, to serve the sentence of their crime and to pay the price of their moral and spiritual debt to God, even as he was on his way to absorb the suffering that we had created and to pay the price we couldn't pay. He looked at his disciples and he said, boldly ask for the benefit that I am going to win for you boldly ask for the benefit that I am going to win for you. I am going to absorb your debt. I am going to be the embodiment of your sin before a righteous God so that you can be forgiven. 
As we explained last week, this verb is in the imperative mood. Imperative moods are commands, right? This is a command. Forgive us our debt, right? We're not saying, hey, would you mind possibly please forgiving our debt if you, you, know, if you think we're worthy of it? Would you, would you mind please maybe forgiving our debt? This is a command, right? It's in the imperative mood. Forgive us our debts. And as we explained last week, a commoner can't command a king and, and we can't command our God. But even a commoner can take a king at his word when that king makes a promise and with humble boldness request what was promised. So Jesus was telling his disciples, I am here to give you that kind of boldness before God. The kind of boldness that equips you to come before the all-righteous, completely holy, all-powerful God. And to do it with a humble, broken boldness. You gave your word, I'm here to collect. You gave a promise, I'm here to receive it. Forgive us our debts. That's not prideful. And that is not presumptuous. That is humble and that is broken, but it is bold because it is standing on the very character of God. God is the one who gave the promise and we are here to claim it. Jesus won our complete and absolute forgiveness on the cross because he completely and absolutely absorbed our debt. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is 1 John 1, 9. I'll put it on the screen behind me. I love this verse. It has been a source of tremendous comfort to me. Um, during those seasons where I have been overwhelmed with my own inadequacy and sin, my own failures and shortcomings. If you don't have it memorized, I would highly encourage you to memorize it. It's a beautiful verse. But John tells us this. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, a couple things about this. John, first of all, is writing to believers. He's not writing to people in order to how to become followers of Christ. He's writing to followers of Christ. That's important to notice because he's not saying that in order to become a follower of Christ, you need to first confess all of your sins. And only once you've confessed all of your sins, then can you be forgiven of your sins. The way you become a follower of Christ is is very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You need to trust in Christ more than you trust in yourself. You need to, to, to throw yourself onto God's salvation project instead of leaning into your own self-salvation project. You need to recognize that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is what you need for forgiveness and entrance back into a relationship with God. You need to cast yourself in faith onto that promise, right? That's how you become a believer. This verse isn't describing how to enter into a relationship with God. It's describing how you maintain your experience of that relationship with God. We must learn to confess our sins in order to experience, re-experience the gift of our forgiveness. The if-then construction of this verse often trips us up because we're such literal readers. And the way we read this is, God will only forgive the sins I confess. If you confess your sins, then he will forgive you. And so what we do is turn that around and say, well, then he only forgives the sins we confess, which is an absolute impossibility right? There are sins of commission, the ones that you know you're doing. There's sins of omission that you don't even know you're doing. There are things you should have done, but you didn't do. Then there's just dumb stuff that you're doing all the time that you don't know is a sin yet, right? You're you're sinning more than you ever knew. You're constantly doing it. There's no way for you to confess all of your sin. He's not saying you need to confess all of your sins in order for them to be forgiven. What he's saying is you need to confess the sins you know 
in order to re-experience the grace of forgiveness. You need to have a regular practice of confessing your sin before God. Forgive us our debts. That is, by its very nature, a confession of sin and a declaration that I need forgiveness, right? We need to come. When you sin against God, it is important to confess. It is important to come again and again and again and again and say, forgive my debt. And He will. He absolutely will. We can be confident of that. You know why? Because He is faithful and just. And I love that phrasing. Faithful and just. He is faithful to forgive us our sins. That means somehow He's obligated to do it, which is really weird. Because you know what God owes us outside of Christ? Judgment. Right? God is the righteous God of the universe, the judge of all things. And and what does He owe us? He owes us justice and righteousness, which is not good news, right? But in Christ, because He has died for me and covered me in His righteousness, He is faithful to the promise, and He is faithful to the work of His Son. Forgiveness is an issue of faithfulness. My forgiveness is rooted in the faithfulness of God. It is His character that keeps me secure. When I come in my sin and I say, forgive my debt, He is faithful to His promise and He is faithful to His Son, and it is also an issue of justice. He is faithful and just. God is a just God, must punish sin. Uh, He doesn't just ignore it. He doesn't overlook it. He doesn't just, oh, okay, we'll just say it didn't happen. God, by His very nature, must judge, and He did. It was our Savior who became our substitute. He's the one that stepped into the debt that we owed and absorbed the pain that we deserved. He was just, and He enacted a payment, and there was suffering. There was death as the result of sin. It was just Christ who paid it for us instead of we for ourselves. And now it's an issue of justice because God is not a God of double jeopardy. He is not going to place on me the debt of my sin when He's already placed it on His Son. He's not going to say, hey, this time you've sinned too much, um, so yeah, I know Jesus already paid for it, but you're going to have to pay for it too. God, by His very just nature, must forgive. When we come to Him and confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins because the payment has been paid. And what's something really, really beautiful about this is He doesn't just pay the price. He cleanses us in the process. Every single time we come and confess our sin and we renew our experience of grace, we're cleansed. Every single time we come and admit our failure, admit our brokenness, come before Him with our, with our, with our, with our sin, with our debt, and we renew our experience of forgiveness, we are changed. God is in the process of not just applying the benefit of Christ's work to us, He is in the process of transforming us into the image of Christ, the very one who died and rose again for us. He's not simply satisfied to change our record. He will change our character. He will not simply change our status. He will transform our persons so that we can become who we were created to become and we can experience what we were created to experience. He is setting us free. He is transforming us. He is blessing us. Every time we come to renew our experience of forgiveness, we are washed. We are changed because we're coming for grace and we are receiving it. And that cleanses us, that changes us, and that sets us free. Forgive us our debts. Isn't that beautiful?
It is bold. It is comforting. Forgive us our debts. But the verse doesn't stop there, does it? Forgive us our debts even as we have forgiven our debtors. Ah, now there's the bite. We love the first part. The second part, not so much. Hmm. And we hate it even more because of the way this is worded. Forgive us our debt even as we have forgiven our debtors. Hmm. That makes it sound like these things are intrinsically tied together somehow. That, that somehow, in order to be forgiven, I have to forgive. That in order to receive grace, somehow I have to give grace, and I'm not very good at that. And, and the reality is I don't want to be because the person who hurt me doesn't deserve it. I don't want to forgive them. I don't want to let them off the hook. The pain is too deep. The betrayal is too, too, too real. And besides that, I thought grace was unconditional. Now I have to go forgive everybody in order to be forgiven. I, I got to go do this work in order to receive the benefit of Christ's work. I have, to, I have to somehow earn it because I think I'm going to fail. All right, so the good news is Jesus isn't saying that, that your salvation is dependent on your ability to forgive other people. Otherwise, we'd all be lost. Your salvation isn't dependent on anything except His grace. It is free, unmerited, undeserved favor. It is Christ's um, uh, record accounted to you freely when you simply trust Him. You don't have to forgive others to earn God's forgiving grace. But if you have truly received God's forgiving grace, it will progressively free you. In fact, it will progressively compel you to forgive others. You ever planted a tree in your yard? How do you know it worked? The stick has to do what? It has to develop leaves, right? You ever have that disappointing experience where you plant the tree and the stick just stays a stick? Not very pleasant. You know, at that point, it's been planted, but it hasn't taken. Its roots didn't go in. It wasn't really planted. It only looked like it. Listen to me, if we've been planted in grace, we will bear the leaves of grace. If we have been truly planted in grace, if we have truly drunk at that fountain, if we have truly tasted the love of God that forgives our sins, it will change us. And in the changing, that grace will work through us. As you grow in grace, you will grow in your ability to forgive. Because these two experiences are, are linked. They're intrinsically linked, right? Growing in our experience of being forgiven and growing in our power to forgive. You can't separate the two. As we drink deeply of God's forgiveness, we will grow in our ability to forgive. If you guys remember one of our previous sermon series, we covered this concept called the three G's. The three G's is our way of describing how grace works in our lives, right? God works toward us in grace. That's the first G. He moves toward us with unexpected and surprising love. And we receive that love, and that awakens within us this deep and profound sense of gratitude, the second G. We are, we are humbled by the gift, and we take joy in the giver, and we're awakened in gratitude. And that gratitude propels us into growth. It propels us to do what we previously didn't think we could do, to be what we previously couldn't be, to, to move in the discomfort of things we tried to avoid. But the growth itself is so hard, it pushes us back into grace. 
The th- puts us back to the beginning of the circle. We've got we to go back to the fountain of grace to drink the grace, which reawakens within us a profound sense of gratitude, which then gives us energy to move into growth, which pushes us back into grace. This is the dynamic cycle of grace. Grace is always moving because grace is alive. And it will change us. It will produce its fruit. When we drink deeply of the well of God's grace, it changes us and frees us into the flow of that grace. There's two things that means. One, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've been forgiven, you will grow in your ability to forgive. And the second thing is this, that that if you're having a hard time forgiving, the solution isn't to work harder. It's to drink deeper. We learn to forgive by tasting more deeply of the forgiveness we've received. So I want to give you a simple process to help you enter into this flow of grace, to learn how to move into forgiveness. It's a very, very simple process. In fact, it's ridiculously simple. That doesn't mean it's an easy process. In fact, there's nothing easy about forgiveness. I haven't decided if forgiveness or waiting on God is harder. They're both, I think, probably the hardest thing God calls us to do. And the reality is often they're linked, aren't they? (laughs) Waiting on God and forgiving others ridiculously hard. Listen to me. Forgiveness will be hard. So hard, in fact, you're going to think it's impossible, and and in fact, it may actually be. Because God is in the regular habit of giving us things that are too hard for us to do. Because in pushing us beyond our ability to do it ourselves, it pushes us back in our dependence on the God who can. In pushing us beyond our our self-sufficiency, it pushes us back into Christ's sufficiency. So it's going to be hard. But let me give you the simple process. First, you need to release the debt. You need to choose to forgive. That's the first step. The first step is to come to God and basically say, look, I want to give this debt to you. I have been hurt. I have been wounded. I have been wronged. I have been betrayed. The one who was supposed to protect me hurt me. The one who was supposed to love me betrayed me. The one that I put all my hope in let me down. The one who I had such high expectations for didn't live up to my expectations. I release the debt to you. They harmed me, and you are the God of justice. So I release the debt to you. And Lord, I want to leave it with you. I will not hold that debt in my heart. I will not create a shrine to that pain in my heart. I will not create a courtroom in my heart where I can sit in judgment over them. I will not wrap up my identity in that pain. I release it. I leave the debt with you. All right, now I want to be as clear as I, as I can be at this point what I mean by that. To release someone from the debt doesn't mean you release them from the responsibility of what they've done. They're still responsible for their choices, and they're still responsible for what they've done. To release them from the debt doesn't release them from the responsibility, nor does it release them from the consequences. There are relational consequences, moral consequences, sometimes legal consequences. To forgive someone, to release their debt, does not release them from their consequences, nor does it release them to continue to do the thing that they had done. 
To forgive someone is not to, to free them up so that they can continue wounding and hurting and defrauding and robbing. To release the debt doesn't mean that the person who incurred the debt is any less responsible, culpable, or should remain free to continue hurting. I have over the last 10 years um, kind of an unexpected role in ministry. I didn't expect that this would become such an important part of what I do as a pastor. But I have walked with a number of women who were in abusive relationships. Their husbands were emotionally abusive, spiritually abusive, at times physically abusive. And they have this way of, of not just abusing their wives, but blaming their wives for the abuse, which is classic behavior of an abuser. If you were just more submissive, I wouldn't have a problem like this. If you just respected me more, then I would be able to be more, more, more calm and even-mannered. If you just created a quiet environment, I wouldn't be provoked. If you, if you, if you, and in the process, they, they wounded them emotionally and spiritually and at times even powered up to the point of physically... And as I walked with those young women, it was an incredible challenge because, first of all, we had to create a safe space. Sometimes the consequences of that man's behavior was that that woman had to be separated from him because he had such a difficulty, he had such low emotional maturity, so little self-knowledge, so, so little self-regulation that in order to protect her, we had to create separation from him. That was a natural consequence of his behavior. At times, they even had to move toward divorce. That is a consequence of his behavior. And he must bear that consequence. But how do I walk with a young woman and help her work through the consequences of his behavior and at the same time forgive him? Because those are two separate things. See, what I had to do was, was not only help her recognize there were steps she needed to take in self-care in order to protect herself and her children, from an abusive situation. There were steps she had to take to also guard her heart from bitterness and resentment. She could not create a shrine of bitterness toward him. She could not allow herself to set up a courtroom in her heart in which she could sit over him and judge him and, and be angry at him and abuse him. To give up the debt means that we tear down the shrine. To give up the debt means we destroy the courtroom. We refuse to be the debt collector because God is God and I am not. He is the God of justice and He is the God of grace and He is the God over all these things. So I release to Him the accountability in the situation. God, this is your debt, not mine. I release the debt. This goes further, though, and I, I, don't, I don't want to neglect to challenge you with this. To forgive isn't just about releasing the debt. It's about learning to love. Jesus said, love your enemies and do good to those who abuse you. To forgive is to love. It's not enough to simply say, I will do my best not to despise you. We have to actually learn how to love the unlovable 
I know some of you right now are like, Steve, man, you, you're talking a different language. I don't know the words you speak. That's impossible. There is no way I will ever love him. I will never love her. Not, not after what they've done, after what they said, after how I have hurt. I will never love them. All right. Maybe it's an impossible task for you right now. So let's not start with the impossible task. Maybe we start with the first step, which is, God, I don't think I can ever love them, but will you teach me what it means to release them? Can we start there? Lord, I release to you the debt. You tell me I have to love them, and that seems absolutely impossible to me right now. I don't know that I will ever be able to get there, but, but will you at least teach me what it means to release the debt? to not try to be God over them, to not harbor the bitterness in my soul, to not foster the resentment. Will you, will you teach me what it means? Can I at least start there? Will you give me this day my daily bread? Today, will you teach me what it means to release this debt? Today, will you help me to let this go? There is a very, very real element of self-interest in this, and I don't want to overlook that because it's real. You realize that in the courtroom in your heart, you're the only one there, right? In your shrine of bitterness, you're the only one there. They're not there. The only one suffering in that place is you. The only one feeling the pain is you. And, and it is in your own interest to destroy the courtroom and to tear down the shrine. Because the prisoner you are setting free is you. That's real. But this goes beyond self-interest. It's not just about doing this because it's good for you. Do this because it honors Christ, the one who died to set you free from your debt. Do this to glorify God, the one who loved you so much that he suffered unimaginably that you might taste once again his love. To forgive. Listen to me. You need to hear this because it's not going to feel, to forgive is not to forsake justice. Some of you, that is the biggest barrier to taking the first step. I don't want to let him off the hook. You're not. It's not your hook to hold. You never could. It's not letting them off the hook. It is not stepping away from justice. It is trusting the God who is just. It is releasing to the debt to the only one who knows how to actually handle it. So the first step, first step, release the debt. The first step, Lord, I want to give it to you. Second step, you all ready? You're like, no, we're done here. All right, second step, you got to run back to grace, man. And you got to run back fast. Run back to the fountain of grace. Like right away. Because <laughs> you need it. Forgiveness, man. Run back. See, every single time you sin and you come and confess that sin to God, you're running back to the fountain of grace. You're renewing your experience of forgiveness. Every time you recognize something where you're falling short, even in trying to forgive others, running back to God with, with that burden, you told me I have to forgive and I can't do it. I confess this to you. He is faithful and just to forgive you and to wash you, to give you a renewed experience of that grace. Run back to the fountain of grace to renew your experience of forgiveness and to renew your experience of his love. 
It is the only way you will have the strength to ever do this. Because forgiveness is never one and done. I don't know if you've realized this yet, but forgiveness, man, it keeps coming back up. It's like you finally heroically move yourself to that event where you're like, God, I want to give this to you. I am going to release it to you. I'm going to step away from this, right? And God, it's yours. And then it's like, yes, I did it. I forgave him. And then he says something stupid. Or an unwanted memory floats back up in your, in your mind or something floats across social media and you're re-experiencing the trauma. And once again, feeling the pain. And you realize forgiveness isn't one and done. I have to do it again and again and again. And let's be honest, you guys. It hurts every time. Because every time you have to absorb the pain. It's the only way it works. It hurts every time. Yeah. And that's why we have step three. You ready for step three? Go back to step one. You got to do it all over again. Once again, as the wound is reopened, as the pain is re-experienced, you have to once again come and give the debt to God. This is your debt, not mine. You are the God of justice. You are the God of grace. You are the God who has forgiven me. I trust you with the pain I have suffered. Let me grow in grace. You have to do it again and again and again. All right, so I've told you it hurts every time. I'm telling you what you already know. Here's something you may not know. It gets easier. And not just because time passes, right? That's such a lie. Time heals all wounds. It's just not true. Time makes wounds fester. You get infected and nasty. Time only heals clean wounds. And the only way wounds get cleaned is with love. It is love that cleans the wound. It is love that brings healing. And over time, listen, over time, God will bring healing to your pain as you continue to bring it back to Him to be flushed out with grace. And not only will it heal your wound, listen, it will change you because every single time you have to come back to God and say, all right, I got to give it to you again. And I'm having a hard time, and I've spent the last half hour in a fantasy about killing this guy. And I'm, here I am, I'm going to give it back to you. Will you forgive me for my sin and help me to forgive those who have sinned against me? Well, can we do this, Lord? Every single time you come back to the fountain of grace, you are not only forgiven, you are cleansed. Even going through this cycle over and over and over again will release within you a blessing that you cannot earn. It will change you. As you are pushed back into grace, it will renew within you a sense of gratitude, which will push you into further growth. You will become more like Christ, and you will become free. Stephen in the New Testament, the first 
martyr of the New Testament. It's a profound story in the book of Acts where he is drug outside of the city and, and they are, the, the, the rulers are, are so nervous about this message of the gospel. It's turning the world upside down, so they decide they're going to kill Stephen in an attempt to try and silence the message, which of course doesn't work, and, and they all throw rocks at him. And as they are throwing rocks at him and they are hitting his body and bruising his body, breaking his bones, and ultimately killing him, he cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was able to love them even as they abused him. Who was the strongest person on that hillside? It wasn't the people with the rocks. Who was the one who had a joy unshakable and a foundation that was firm? Who was the one who understood his own dignity and stood in an experience of deep and profound love? It was Stephen because Stephen could love in the face of hate. And he could forgive those who hurt him because he could see in them the image of himself. He can see in them a brokenness that need to be healed, a hurt that needed to be that needed to be healed. And he could see in Christ the solution to both. He could actually love. Stephen was a lot like Jesus. Huh? Jesus, the very one who willingly laid out his arms that the spikes might be driven through them. That he might die for the very people who were nailing him to the cross. That's the power of forgiveness. That's not weakness. That's not walking away from justice. That's power. That's freedom. That's joy. That's love. I'm going to close this out with a quote. Uh, this is a quote from Miroslav Volf. Um, the beginning of the quotes in your bulletin, the first sentence says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. You understand what he's saying there? Forgiveness flounders because there are three groups, God, the good guys, and the bad guys. And I'm in the good guys and you're one of the bad guys. Right? There's monsters over here, good people over here, and then there's God. And you hurt me, so you're a monster. And I'm over here because I'm a good guy. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude myself from their, I'm, I'm not a sinner like them, and they're not a human like me, right? The quote goes on. I want to read you the whole quote. We have it on the screen behind me. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity, and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. When one knows, as the cross demonstrates, that the torturer will not eternally triumph over his victim, one is free to rediscover that person's humanity and imitate God's love for him. And when one knows, as the cross demonstrates, that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself in light of God's justice and so rediscover one's own sinfulness. Forgiveness flounders when we refuse to see ourselves as those desperately in need of grace. We have been hurt, but we've also hurt. And God died that we might be forgiven, drinking deeply at the fountain of grace changes us and frees us.
This Christmas, y'all, let's not settle for giving and receiving trinkets, for singing happy birthday to Jesus. Let's embrace the heart of his mission, the reason God became man, the reason Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Let's go deep and drink at the fountain of grace. And in drinking deeply of grace, let's grow in the generosity of grace, learning to forgive even as we have been forgiven. Merry Christmas, y'all. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. We'll share communion in a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are, as always, the model of what you ask us to be, what you ask us to do. You have modeled for us what it means to forgive. You absorbed the pain and you extended love. And in so doing, Lord, you weren't diminished, but we were enriched. Spirit, would you give us the courage to trust your plan more than we trust ours? Would you give us the courage to forsake our bitterness and leave our resentment and move into the flow of grace to receive a love that is indescribable, that we might move out in a love that seems impossible? Lord, will you, will you awaken us to the profound beauty of grace? That then, having been awakened, we might be able to see with clarity and live life with boldness and experience a joy that rises above our circumstances and isn't dependent on others. So much so that we might even learn to forgive. Spirit, you're the one that has to do this work in us, so we lean on you and come humbly and boldly to you. Forgive us our debts, even as we forgive our debtors. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.